So now you have a perfect storm for other infections to infect the human body. Countless papers now talk about reactivation of shingles. I keep hearing reports of wildfire cancers. Today, sit down again with pathologist Dr. Ryan Cole for an update on the alarming trends he's seen since the rollout of the mRNA vaccines. Over the years, his practice, Cole Diagnostics, has processed tens of thousands of blood and biopsy patient samples annually. These people aren't looking at the cells under the microscope. They're not seeing the damage I am. Many of my colleagues are. Dr. Cole breaks down the mechanisms through which the spike protein can cause symptoms being reported by the vaccine injured. The cells don't lie. The clots don't lie. The damaged organs don't lie. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest-rated firms in the country, with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Ryan Cole, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. It's an honor to be back with you, Jan. Thank you. Um, It's been, I guess, three quarters of a year or something like this. It feels like an eternity these days that uh, since we last sat down, you know, you were seeing in your routine work as a pathologist, you were seeing viruses that typically only occur in children, occurring in adults. You were seeing upticks in rare cancers. Where have things gone now? Same story, different day. So still seeing odd, unusual things, still being attacked for trying to share science and data. Uh, Sometimes the truth isn't convenient societally. I have no agenda. I have no narrative other than here's science and data. That's my job. I come to the scene of the accident as the pathologist and report what's at the scene of the accident, the cancer, the cells, the tumor. Um, So we're still seeing unusual cancers in unusual age groups at slightly higher rates. Uh, this is now being confirmed by certain uh, federal data sets that are being analyzed. The cancer trends are markedly up, and that's from the CDC's own trend data sets. So it's not just me saying, as a voice in the wilderness, this is happening. There's statistical data backing it now, and other nations are seeing the same. And as I have shared at different conferences around the world now. Um, I was in Kentucky last weekend, radiation uh, interventional radiologist came up to me. He said, you wouldn't believe how many young women I'm seeing with breast cancer, stage four, aggressive. I said, I would believe it. Because I get calls daily from doctors around the country and around the world um, expressing what they're seeing, and they're shocked. And try getting into an oncologist right now for an appointment. It's darn near impossible. They're so backed up, try getting in for a mammogram. Uh, Try getting in for a screening of any sort. Um, Were those immunologic patterns that I mentioned nine months ago under the microscope continue? Um, Depletion of certain sets of cells that keep cancers in check, absolutely happening. And thankfully, more people are coming to the fore sharing what they're seeing as well. And I do have some colleagues around the world that are speaking up. I was lucky enough to be in Europe a couple of weeks ago with uh, a large meeting, but got to get together privately with several other pathologists, confirming that, no, I'm not crazy. They're seeing the same thing. Um, They're cautious at how they approach it as well. Um, One's career is on the line for telling the truth anymore. So, you know, I want to Talk a little bit about these cells that you know clean things up. Phagocytes, right? Mm-hmm. Is, I 
if I recall yeah. what they're called from my early the biology. little garbage truck cells. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, exactly. And so you know what you're basically talking about is the immune, the immune system has been compromised somehow in right. in people where this is happening. Correct. So t so explain that. So your your immune system. For a simple way of thinking, you have an immediate reacting arm of it and you have a slow acting arm. So your immediate is your innate immune system. That's your phagocytes, your dendritic cells, your kill natural killer cells. They're the marines of the immune system. They're ready at a moment's notice, something comes in, attack, gobble, gone. Your adaptive immune system, that's what you, everybody, all my antibodies, what about my antibodies? That's a delayed response and the uh, B cells become plasma cells, become trained to remember. So in the future when they encounter an infection, they can ramp up an antibody response. So th they work in tandem, these two arms of the immune system. But there are countless papers now in the literature. FOSA was one of the early ones after, uh, out of the Netherlands, FOSA uh, did a study on the Pfizer vaccines showing that these marines of the immune system were no longer reacting in the robust manner they normally do. So when an invader comes in, they're ready to react. And then each unit of that system, there's little pattern recognizers. So, okay, you remember this and this, these little toll-like receptors. You fight off this virus, you fight off that virus, you fight off this bacteria, you fight off that fungus. So there's all these little pattern signals that the body has. Now those are downregulated too. Now the body goes, okay, I have fewer Marines on the front line. The ones I do have aren't doing their job and aren't working. Nobody's remembering the pattern of what they're supposed to fight. So now you have a perfect storm of the ability for other infections to infect the human body. So we saw this last year how RSV in children was out of season. And then we saw adults getting RSV and being hospitalized with respiratory syncytial virus, which is usually only threatening to newborns and children under the age of one due to the size of their windpipe. Not just that, but countless papers now talk about reactivation of shingles. It's so many upticks of shingles, and there were certain papers showing the spike protein present in those shingles lesions. and. And it's concerning because these are things that the immune system would normally say, oh, we'll keep that in check, we'll keep that in check, we'll keep that in check. But that innate, that, that immediate responsive arm is not as robust as it's supposed to be in the majority of people that have received the shots. Now, we don't know for how long that pattern is expressed in each individual. Everybody's biologically unique. So I think it's prudent to say not everybody's having that, thankfully. And I think a lot of people got different doses of, in terms of the number of doses they got, as well as purity of vials, purity of injection, purity of product. That's another big question we can talk about in a bit if you'd like to, but it really begs the question of how long are these individuals going to remain in this immune suppressed state? The other critically important thing with these immune patterns that are shifted is some of those cells are the same ones that do keep these cancers in check. Mm -hmm. So the reason you and I don't have cancer right now, you do, I do, she does, he does, we're sitting here, we have a, a handful of atypical cells every day, but because we have these surveyors, these natural killer cells shaking hands with every cell in our body, right now you have 30 billion T cells circulating, so do I, and they're shaking hands with every cell saying friend or foe, friend or foe, Mutated, not mutated. And if it's mutated, they poke a little hole in it, throw a little hand grenade, that cell is gone. And we're good, simple as that. But those cells are now gone in many of these individuals or weak enough that they can't do their job of keeping those cancers in check. And that's why I keep hearing the reports, one of the reasons I keep hearing reports of wildfire cancers in um, many patients. And it seems to be a dose accumulated effect the spike is uh, dose-dependent toxicity. The more spike you get, the longer your body keeps making it, and the more adversely many systems are affected. So now, are we talking about spike coming from COVID, or are we talking spike coming from vaccines, or to both? Be, and to be fair, both. But interestingly, spike from a natural infection doesn't persist as long. The immune system, when it 
encounters COVID for the first time, if you haven't had the immune suppression of the shot, you have a broad, non-specific response to any infection. Normally, in individuals that are reasonably immune competent, your body is going to clear that entire virus and spike within seven to 10 days. Now, personally, when I had COVID back in December, I, I suffer from chronic mononucleosis, Epstein-Barr virus, from before the pandemic. And it waxes and wanes, and my body keeps it in check, and I do a lot of different things to try to keep it in check. But after I had COVID, it got worse for a couple of weeks. So that spike protein, whether from the natural infection or from the injection, can do these same things. The challenge is, when we look at the work of Dr. Roltgen out of Stanford that she published in the journal Cell, that spike, pro that pseudouridine of the mRNA shots doesn't get broken down in the body. So that's the little message, the messenger RNA you're making billions of messages right now for every cell in your body, and so am I. And after that message says, okay, you've made enough protein or enough of this for the cell or enough of that to make that enzyme, then in minutes to hours, that mRNA breaks down and stops. These synthetic injections, Dr. Roltgen in her study found were persisting for at least 60 days in the lymph nodes, at least 60, at which point she stopped so she could publish. So we know the sequence is persisting in the body for at least 60 days, but in her study they also showed that the spike protein was persisting in circulation as well and in the lymph nodes. So we know that spike protein from the injections is present for a much longer period of time. Now the naysayers will say, oh, but it's such a small amount. I'm like, yeah, but you can kill someone with this much cyanide and this much fentanyl. I mean, when something's toxic, it's toxic. So to have spike proteins circulating in just minute levels can still trigger all these immune system harms. So from the, the injections, we know it's persisting longer. Now, some people will say, well, what about Novavax? It's just a protein, but it's still a spike protein. And that spike protein is a pretty high dose in Novavax, and it does have a black box warning that it can go to the heart and cause myocarditis at higher rates than some of the other shots. They don't get an out on this either. That spike protein, plain and simple, is um, pathophysiologically toxic to the human body. Well, so I want to talk a lot about this. I mean, this is kind of your purpose of being here today is to talk the, about I'm this. I'm the science exactly. nerd, it's true. <laughs> um, and, but before I go there, I, just, I guess I want to find a, a bit more about what's happened with your career, with your pathology lab. Um, you know, eight, nine months is a long time. It's been a, a bumpy road. Um, when health and wellness and life and the oath I took to a patient's on the line, I won't quit what I'm doing. Uh, I've taken a lot of darts from adversarial uh, media companies, adversarial insurance companies, adversarial hospital systems, um, a lot of criticism. Uh, I've had a 26 career, year career of being a physician seen 500,000 patients in that career. I have yet to have one patient care complaint against me in 26 years, never had a lawsuit. And now all of a sudden I find myself in the crosshairs for sharing science. So because of that, I lost one of my major insurance contracts for my quote, unprofessional behavior of talking about ivermectin and helping save a handful of lives with that for free. I never charged a patient. And then they say, well, gosh, you're a pathologist. Well, I did years of emergency medicine, years of family medicine, years of dermatology. I never quit being a doctor. I'm the doctor to the doctor as the laboratory uh, physician now. But so I lost major contract there um, to the point that um, I've lost a lot of employees. Uh, my business has gone down. Um, my blood business uh, has been affected drastically to where I'm turning that over to another independent laboratory. Um, my name is now mud in my region, even though I seem to be a folk hero in other people's eyes. I never quit being a good pathologist. I trained at the Mayo Clinic. I trained at the best institution in the world. I've seen the weirdest cases in the world. Um, I even have one of my friends, a uh, physician, he's like, I, you're a great pathologist, but I have patients complaining. You're not sending to him, are you? Because of what the media says about me. Not because I don't have a good diagnostic skill set and a, a broad knowledge base. So yeah, I'm, I'm taking it on the chin financially. I'm, I have six daughters, four are in college right now. I have a family to feed too, and I've invited anyone and everyone in the world, if you disagree with me, bring better data. Bring better data. Crickets. Nine months ago we talked about this, crickets. Nine months later, I've yet to have a colleague say, you know, I want to sit down and show you where you're wrong. 
because I'm always willing to be wrong. That's science. Science is asking the question and testing the hypothesis and, and saying, huh, we could be right or wrong, but let's prove it. But yeah, life's been a little rougher for me. Thankfully, I have some transitional things I'm working on. I've become somewhat of a medical educator, which I enjoy, and still writing my book. That'll come out soon, working on some podcasts and videos I've been doing with other individuals that um, I'll be doing, as well as I'll be doing more of an autopsy service for families around the world as I get a lot of those requests now. Was it the vaccine? Wasn't it the vaccine? You know, I was looking at uh, one of your slides. The slide basically showed um, you know, spike protein basically in the epithelial epithelium of blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. endothelial lining of the blood vessel. That's uh -huh. right. Yeah, and and this is something that's been frustrating. So in pathology for eons, I mean decades and decades and decades, we've had the ability to uh, isolate proteins within cells. So any cell in your body has hundreds if not thousands of different types of proteins. And we can determine by making a very specific antibody to that protein and then we tag a little antibody to its tail and when it binds to it we know it's present. And on the tail of that second antibody we can put what's called a chromogen, a color, make it glow. So under the microscope we can take any tissue in the body. So like if someone has a lung cancer it'll have a certain type of keratin. If someone has a uh, ovarian cancer, it'll have a different type of keratin. And there's a lot of different cytoskeleton keratins in the body. So we can stain these, and have been able to do this forever in medicine. With the uh, onset of SARS-CoV-2, these spike proteins have a very specific protein shape. So you can take these proteins, inject them into a hamster, a rabbit, a goat, and they'll make an antibody against it, and then you can isolate those antibodies and now we can use those t in the laboratory against very specific protein pieces. You, know, you don't even have to do the whole thing. You can do just one segment of it. Then you make it glow. Then you look at it under the scope. And those vessels, these little dots, it's like everywhere that I see that color glow now, I know spike protein is present. And so we've seen this. Um, it's in the medical literature now. There was a necrotizing encephalitis. That was the one I was showing you that had just been published in an older gentleman that um, passed away. His heart was also replete with spike protein as well. And so this spike protein we can identify in any tissues where it's present or absent. And then the question becomes, well, is it from the vaccine? Good question. <laughs> we also stain for the nucleocapsid. If it were a whole viral infection, both proteins would be identifiable and present in that same tissue. When the nucleocapsid is absent and only the spike is present, then we know that it is from those persistent vaccinal spike proteins that are circulating and depositing throughout the body. And some universities, thankfully, are starting to do some studies and report. I have a good friend at a large university. I asked her at a meeting about six months ago, hey, why aren't you sharing these things? She said, well, I'd lose my job. I'm like, yeah, I get that. I understand that conundrum. But uh, she confirmed, and now, thankfully, her university just published a series of three patients and the spike harms causing um, breakdown of the muscles, the spike protein causing uh, myositis and breakdown of muscles. And so she proudly texted me, hey, look, we got it published. I'm like, you go. You know, it, it's nice to see other scientists finally stepping up and doing what I know the profession can do. And these are very smart people, and they shouldn't be afraid of real science. So in the pathology that you have done, how often is it the disease versus the vaccine spike? Early on, we saw a lot of COVID fingers and toes. So COVID primarily was a clotting disease. Uh, now that Omicron here is here, it's not as much of a clotting disease. We don't, we don't see um, the same pathophysiology with, I call it cold-vid now, not COVID. That's one thing that's changed because in the majority of people, it's a cold, it's a common cold. The vaccinal spike is still the original Wuhan spike. That's the clotting spike. The Omicron spike is not the clotting spike. So when I see individuals, it, it, it's a 20-fold-ish less uh, clotting effect that we see from Omicron compared to, say, the Wuhan, the Alpha, the Delta, the Gamma, the earlier variants. It's just acting differently because of the mutations it's acquired, because 
with that vaccinal spike and the early variant spike, the S1 and the S2 split off because of that little furin cleavage protein. And then that S1 circulates and becomes very inflammatory, and that's what we identify in those tissues we were talking about. With Omicron, that doesn't happen. And because of that, now we know the vaccine is more dangerous than the virus itself because the vaccine still has all those pro-clotting abilities, has all those inflammatory abilities, whereas the spike from Omicron does not. So the fact that the Wuhan spike is still present in any of these vaccines, when in circulation it went extinct more than a year and a half ago now, is really perplexing. It's an extinct virus. So we're vaccinating against something that doesn't exist anymore technically and has all risk with zero benefit. It can cause the clotting still. It can trigger those inflammatory pathways. It can get into the nucleus of our T cells we were talking about. It can get into our mitochondria and destroy our mitochondrial function. That's the respiration of every cell in our body. Um, it can bind to the abundant ACE2 receptors on ovarian cells. It can destroy um, metabolic pathways to where your liver becomes fatty. It can destroy kidney capacity. It causes brain fog because it can cross the blood-brain barrier. Omicron doesn't do that. It may to a tiny degree, so don't quote me as saying never, never say never. Omicron is mutating and I have reports out of colleagues in the upper Midwest saying they're seeing more pulmonary COVID again but I don't know if that's in the vaccinated individuals and not the unvaccinated. I'm, the probability is the vaccinated based on data coming out of other countries. This is kind of a major question for me, like where are the spike harms manifesting? Okay, so the, the first one is what you kind of brought up um, early and that's reactivated viruses. Um, again, personal confession, Epstein-Barr. It is no fun to have chronic fatigue syndrome. People see me and they're like, oh, he's the energizer bunny. I'm like, yeah, for three or four hours a day. And then you don't see how much I have to go try to recover and crash. So I understand you know, that vaccine injury feeling of this chronic fatigue feeling. So number one, reactivated Epstein-Barr, um, you know, my colleague, Dr. Urso, in about half of his fatigued patients, it's reactivated viruses that he's seeing. So I don't judge people. If you got a shot, didn't get a shot, people were doing what they thought was best at the time. What I say now is if you got one, don't get two. If you got two, definitely don't get three. If you got three, please don't get four. Because not only is that Wuhan gone, but the uh, Moderna only covers BA1 and Wuhan, both extinct. Pfizer covers Wuhan plus a fragment of BA4 and BA5, which are on the wane because now we're seeing the new variants come up. Now we have two expired products for to extinct viruses. But that spike causes reactivation of viruses. Epstein-Barr virus is the one that causes a lot of fatigue in patients. Other herpes family viruses, cytomegalovirus, CMV. Um, we're seeing an uptick in Lyme disease. Um, we are seeing an uptick in unusual viruses, um, para-echoviruses in children. Uh, Para-influenza viruses normally don't hospitalize adults. Now we're seeing adults hospitalized with those. It's the immune system's inability, so that's one. Reactivation of other diseases because of immune suppression. Number two, mitochondrial harm. So I mentioned mitochondria. Mitochondria, every cell in your body has mitochondria. And they're the powerhouse of your cell. And they're responsible for making ATP as their end product. And why does a hummingbird's wings fly so fast? Because they're making countless copies of ATP so quickly. Very, very energetic cells. The spike protein will disrupt um, metabolism and disrupt those pathways in the mitochondria. So Dr. Clough out of Poland, Dr. Abramovich, they looked at this and they were able to show, look, in especially neural tissue. So talking about brain fog, you know, the individuals you hear say that so much, it's because the mitochondria are being harmed. That spike is getting in there. And I'll give you a picture to show in this presentation of that spike in the brain tissue. That mitochondria, now it's damaged, it can't produce as much ATP. And now these neural cells are about the equivalent of the cells in a brain tumor. They're slow, they're mushy, they're not quick to react. That can happen in cardiac tissue. Another paper that I'll present tomorrow has that um, 
clearly presented. That can happen in ovarian tissue. That can happen in muscle tissue. So one virus is two, mitochondria. Three, cardiac damage. We know that the spike protein gets into the heart tissues. That spike protein will induce all those other inflammatory cells to come in and now swell the heart. Um, there was a really interesting study on cardiomyopathy, that swelling, ballooning of the heart in a mouse model, and it swelled the heart by like 30%. I have the tissues of triathletes that died on their swim, and these are peak of performance, a week or two after their second shot. Autopsy from the medical examiner's office, cardiomegaly, oh well. But they didn't look for spike protein. And that's, again, I'm encouraging all my colleagues, look, you have the ability to do this, do this now. Every coroner, every medical examiner, they have the ability to do this. So these sudden adult deaths that we're hearing about that are unusual weren't happening in 2020 during the COVID outbreak. Weren't happening in early 2021 before the younger cohort were mandated to start getting the shots. They started happening in late 21 and have continued as people start getting this third and fourth shot. There's the ability for any and every pathologist in the world, not me, not me, just not just me, any and all of them can look for this. So they can find that spike protein in those cardiac tissues. Um, it can destroy any tissue in the body in terms of, it, the spike itself doesn't destroy the tissue. The spike lands and then it triggers an inflammatory reaction. The body wants to react to it. So then all those inflammatory cells release cytokines and chemicals that will end up munching away those tissues. Uh, there's the fertility question, and I will get criticized for this. Uh, we know that the lipid nanoparticle goes to the ovaries. We know how much the eggs in the ovaries express ACE2 during their developmental cycles. The spike protein binds there. What does the inflammatory system do? Same thing it's doing to those other organs. So in Germany, 20% decrease in 2022 first quarter of fertility rates. Same thing in Sweden, same thing in Taiwan, same thing in other Scandinavian countries. Correlation doesn't equal causation. But as a pathologist, that's a concerning area I've seen as well in terms of um, the spike protein affecting um, hormonal cycles. So even if the woman isn't trying to get pregnant, that spike protein can go to the brain, can go to our feedback loops of our endocrine system in the brain and, uh, and our endocrine organs and feedback and mess up our hormone cycles. So we've seen a lot of that in the laboratory. The spike protein can go to the adrenal glands, our autonomic uh, nervous system, our sympathetic, parasympathetic ner nervous system, your blood pressure, um, your ability to you know, rev up or relax, fight or flight, that gets messed up. Um, the spike will go to the chromaffin cells of the adrenal gland, all sorts of things. Um, in addition to that, that spike protein will um, inflame the blood vessels, you know, the endothelial lining, and this gets into the clotting cascades, and this is highly, high, highly concerning. And again, that Wuhan spike that's on these shots isn't on Omicron. Omicron is a new variant. That shot has that very thrombogenic, clot-inducing spike protein. And there are receptors all throughout our body, on our platelets, on those endothelial, those blood cell linings, on our red blood cells, that once that spike binds, it just starts this whole little cascade, this little waterfall of this chemical binds this, 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 and what you end up with is microclots and macroclots. And many people have seen the macroclots that I've shown in a couple of the interviews. Um, thankfully, I've received some from living patients. So that, you know, people will criticize and say, oh gosh, that's just blood pooling post-mortem. No, I've done a lot of autopsies in my career. The blood post-mortem, yeah, it clots and congeals, but it's kind of red and jelly-like. They aren't white and rubbery. Post-mortem clots are not. Um, I've worked with some interventional radiologists that have pulled some of these out of blocking uh, vessels, and they're identical to the postmortem ones. Mm. So they're made up of a lot of uh, thick deposited protein, and many of them have spike protein deposited in them because that spike triggers these cascades to clot. So a lot of uh, COVID um, post, you know, some post-COVID patients have the long-haul patients have this problem, microclotting. 
So some natural things like breaking down those fi the fibrin in the clots from uh, natokinase, which is a enzyme from a fermented soy product. A lot of people have found success with that. Just enough, not too much. You don't want to cause bleeding. Um, but we're finding different things, and that's part of the reason we're here at this conference. I get to be the Debbie Downer and show all the harms, and my colleagues will show what options we're learning about day by day to try to reverse some of these harms. So clotting is a huge problem with this spike protein. Interferon. So interferon is a very important chemical that your cells make to recruit cells to react to either infections or cancer. Interferon is suppressed by the spike protein. So uh, that's another harm of the spike protein. So there are medicines that can re-rev up your interferon. Some of them are the drugs that shall not be named. Um, <laughs> interestingly too, I mean ivermectin. But iver ivermectin also binds one of the um, clotting receptors, the CD147 receptor. So some of these miracle rebound patients that uh, many colleagues have seen around the world um, that were in the ICU and given up for dead, given high doses of ivermectin. I have a colleague in South Africa who saw a patient literally reperfuse her body before her eyes once she got the dose high enough because it will literally bump the spike uh, protein off the CD147 receptor. And all of a sudden, you know, competitively, ivermectin and the spike bind for that, uh, or vi compete for that site. But when there's enough ivermectin in circulation and it pushes that off, now the spike can't cause those clots to hold together. Let me go back real quick, because um, I remember I mentioned the, the ovaries and the eggs, men, Israel, um, study came out of Israel showing it decreased sperm counts and sperm motility as well. This is one frustration I have. So there was a study out of Sweden, a very good study that showed uh, that the spike in, in vitro, in glass, not in, in the human body, could portions of that spike reverse transcribe into our own DNA? The answer was yes. The whole spike protein, no, but sequences of it. So the question now becomes, a community, large community laboratory that's a lot smaller than it used to be, serving um, patients in the community, we don't have the resources to say, okay, I'm gonna do this gene sequence study on this organ or this vax-injured patient or this um, individual. This is where there's kind of a call to action. A lot of medicine, if we want real science, is no longer going to be done by the big journals because they're corrupted and biased by the pharmaceutical funders that tell them what they can and can't publish. And the NIH controls the purse strings of what kind of studies need to be done. If we want true, pure science with no bias, the answer is we need to be able to look at things, whether the answer is convenient or not, to whatever narrative is out there, whether it be a cancer narrative, a COVID narrative, uh, whatever. Science shouldn't have an agenda. Science should have a goal of learning so it can improve humanity. And sometimes in science, we prove the negative. Okay, this wasn't the answer, let's find the next thing. Or this wasn't present, great. We proved that that's not the cause. But like this reverse transcription question, why hasn't a university that has big resources repeated that same study in tissue from people? There's no good, no good answer other than they're, they're afraid of losing funding. You would think this would be of great social interest. Absolutely. Right. To all of humanity. Right. With billions that have received these injections, the question is, why aren't we doing these things? And I think you know, the short answer is fear, repercussion, reprisal. I didn't go into medicine for the big three-letter agencies. I didn't go into medicine for an administrator or a hospital. I went into medicine for a patient. And we have this oath that we took to the patient. That Hippocratic oath is to the patient. And I think we have, you know, primum non nocere, first do no harm. Well, that's a harm of commission. Sure, you don't want to harm the patient. But what about the harm of omission? by not doing the science that one could do that could potentially help a lot of patients. And I think we have a societal apology as a medical profession that is owed to humanity for not doing all of these things earlier on than in this pandemic, not only early treatment, but these studies that have been widely available but not funded. My colleagues and I in the groups that I run in have been trying to do what's right. Most of us have lost everything. 
but at the end of the day, we've kept our integrity, and I like to say that integrity is the distance between your lips and your actions. And so it's time for integrity and in science to happen again. It's time for my colleagues in those large ivory towers, it's time for the scientists in those federal agencies to step up and say, okay, we messed up, but we'll do science going forward. Am I hopeful? Not really. Well, my, my observation is, and by the way, I don't think we actually talked about myocarditis, which is, oh, yeah. which is the one that, that people tend to know about. What strikes me is that the scale of the harms is quite large, or at least an order of magnitude, greater than other, other traditional vaccines of the past, even the hot, hotter ones, as it's called. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I just don't think it's something that can be hidden. You're right. Yeah. Long enough. So, I mean, the, the call that you're making seems to be also in the self-interest of people, because the people that start doing this work, I think, will be seen as, you know, basically doing the right thing in the not too distant future. I mean, unless we go into some terrible, terrible dystopian mm -hmm. nightmare future. I'm aware of a colleague in a situation like that, and he sits on one of these fairly draconian boards, and he's now vaccine injured. And he saw on his chart, there was a space for his fourth shot. And after having severe uh, ringing in his ears, tinnitus, he's and a couple of other physiologic things, he's woken up. And now he's a voice from within to say to these more oppressive agencies, guys, I'm now harmed. These people are telling the truth. And the Zogby poll that showed 15% of people since the rollout of the shots have a new medical condition. So that's societally significant. Well, what's the good news on the corollary? 85% were fine. So I think a lot of people got duds as far as you know, some rounds of the shot went in terms of lining up in stadi hot stadiums and lipids turning to mush and RNA degrading. Okay, wait a second, I'm gonna stop you. <laughs> this is fascinating, right? So basically you're saying that the harm, you believe the harms aren't greater because people got bad vaccines. I think the ones that got the dose they were supposed to get are the ones that got harmed. So I think the other vials were degraded and, and there wasn't enough product there to actually trigger these reactions. And I have some data that'll be coming out. It'll be published on a large platform in a couple of weeks, looking at the biochemical um, distribution in about 130 different vials. And the ratios of different chemicals in those vials. And they're not the same. They're not all the same. So the good news is a lot of people are fine because either they're they're shot, remember these are multi-use vials, so once that nurse puts that first one in, now she's put oxygen in there, and you start getting oxidative stress of the ingredients as well as the vial is warming up. And the more warm it becomes, the less intact the RNA becomes. But the less the RNA is intact is another problem. A known cause of cancer is exposure to short sequences of RNA. The European Medicines Agency uh, there were leaked emails where they said they would allow Pfizer to only have 50% purity in their vials. This was early on. What that means is there are incomplete RNA sequences that don't code for the whole spike protein, but code for who knows what. And there, I'll, I'll present this tomorrow, but there are countless papers in the literature that show the risks and harms of these shorter RNAs making atypical proteins that can cause atypical pathways of mutation in cells. So some people were fine, a lot of people we don't know, some people are obviously harmed, more people are becoming aware of it as they see it in their environment with family members and friends, more people are aware of the acute increase in excess mortality across the world. I know Ed Dowd and the insurance groups have been very onto that. You look at the country of uh, Iceland, small country, 350,000-ish people, uh, one of the most compliant nations in terms of the shot. And in July, just a few months ago, their excess mortality rate above five-year average was 56%. Astronomical. So this- this 56% above ab normal. Above normal, yep. So, you know, we, you know, we have these ups and downs in mortality every year. These are charts and graphs that actuaries keep. In the month of July, if you look, you know, three years ago, you know, here's your average death rate, 56% above that. 
Now, Portugal, 30-ish percent above average. Uh, Spain, 30-ish percent above average. A couple of other European nations, 10, 12, 15 percent above average. And these are in young, healthy cohorts. And, and that's what's interesting. It's not just, oh gosh, well, old people die. Of course they do. All of us are going to. But these are people in the prime of their life. If you look at the uptick in the rates of data, every day I get a colleague, oh, got another one. Another friend passed away. Another person lost their 15-year-old. Someone just lost their 9-year-old. Someone just lost their 40-year-old dad, etc. And then I, my question is, when did they get their most recent shot? And those pathways of harm that we've been discussing, that's where the elephant in the room is the elephant in the room. And this is, again, I'm, I'm, the call to action is every coroner, every medical examiner needs to request a spike in a nucleocapsid stain on every organ in the body of every young deceased person. Simple as that. And if they won't, I'll do it. So you know, from your experience and that of your colleagues, how long does this spike persist in the body? That is an excellent question, and that, that's been very frustrating for me. Nobody knows. The honest answer is we don't know. A lot of people have very competent immune systems. We know a lot of people after the infection clear it very quickly. There were some autopsy studies showing people had virus several months later from the infection proper. Now, Bruce Patterson, he did some work that showed in circulating macrophages, type 2 monocytes, spike protein was present in those cells circulating 15 months after a severe infection. Now, from the vaccine, we know at least 60 days from the Dr. Rolkin trial. Dr. Bonsall in the Journal of Immunology showed that it was circulating in exosomes for at least four months. Uh, Dr. Burkhart's autopsy studies out of Germany show deposit, deposition of spike protein at least four months after the prior injection. So the honest answer is we don't have one complete trial, be it mammal model or human model, showing when the mechanism shuts off. Thankfully, most people, I, it would appear their body clears it reasonably quickly, but we don't know the genetic predisposition to the type of individual that is holding on to virus for a long time. Um, we know the immune suppressed a lot of chemo patients, a lot of cancer patients. There was one lymphoma patient where they watched him over hundreds of days, literally brew variant after variant after variant because his body could do nothing against it as a lymphoma leukemia patient. It's an unknown. I wish I knew the answer. Let's talk about myocarditis yes. briefly. I do want to talk about clotting actually a little bit more as well, but uh, you know, recently uh, Surgeon General of Florida, uh, Joe Ladapo, has uh, offered new guidance basically saying you know, men under 39 shouldn't get this, shouldn't get these genetic vaccines because of myocarditis. Dramatic increase myocarditis harms or deaths. So how does this comport with what you're seeing and what are you seeing? I agree with him a thousand percent and I would say not only these genetic vaccines, but the Novavax, the spike in that one is also known to cause myocarditis at increased rates, and the genetic vaccines. Recently, Norway said under age 65, unless you have a pre-existing condition, uh, quietly in the UK, their advisory data just did the same thing for anyone under 50. So I love... Uh, um, Dr. Ladapo, he's a great, great guy. I've met him before, been at a conference with him. And he's a thinker. I mean, this is a Harvard, UCLA guy. He's, he's no dummy. He knows data. And I've seen the media criticize him for this decision, but they did a, a very typical, if you go back to all other vaccines, if you're trying to tease out a signal in data, he did the required studies that have been done historically and came to this conclusion. And I think it's a rational conclusion young men in these cohorts don't have risk for death from this disease, especially now that we have Omicron, COVID, not COVID. So we're, we're requiring people, we're requiring our military, our young healthy people, the school systems in certain regions are still trying to get kids to get these shots that they don't need for, number one, a disease that's extinct, as I mentioned, in terms of the variants, for a disease for the which they're at no risk. So we're putting their hearts at risk. Now, myocarditis, you hear a lot of people say, oh, it's mild, don't worry about it. There's no such thing as mild myocarditis. So there was a, a study last year that looked at myocarditis in athletes. Half of athletes, it was subclinical, meaning 
they didn't know their heart was inflamed, but on scan their heart was inflamed. There was another study that came out and showed in these children that had myocarditis, several months later, they still had gadolinium signal, which means they had scar. So it's not like their myocarditis was readily resolving. The long-term sequela of myocarditis is fibrosis of that heart muscle. So there, there are two pathways of harm um, from these shots for myocarditis. Number one is that spike protein getting into those tissues. And then number two, when one gets um, Dr. Gill in the archives of uh, pathology published uh, two postmortems on two teenage boys that both died after their second um, mRNA shots. And they had a pattern that suggests catecholamine, so an adrenal dump and your, kind of your fight or flight response, and they had excess catecholamines, and then that can cause the heart to go into you know, atypical rhythms, and then the electrical signals stop, and one passes very quickly. Um, some studies have suggested um, the amyloid-like protein that we're seeing in, in these clots, um, that amyloid, because of the spike protein, um, can also start accumulating between the heart fibers, and then your heart doesn't, it becomes stiffer and less elastic. So there are multiple mechanisms of harm for inflammation of the heart. Um, there are multiple pathways to treatment, but the, the long-term outcome for myocarditis patients statistically isn't great. So I think it was very astute, very uh, scientifically proper uh, for Dr. Latipo, and I would encourage every Surgeon General and every state in this nation to follow his example because otherwise we're literally saying we, are will we, we know the mechanisms. I will give you every mechanism and every paper on the mechanisms of harm to any colleague that wants them. And we know the statistics from around the world and we see the other nations doing the right thing by stopping this and we are putting a young generation in harm's way for a disease for the which they're at no risk. And it makes no sense, there's no common sense and there's no logic for us to be doing this. It, it makes no sense, this is not medicine. This is, who knows, power, corruption, I don't know, but this isn't medicine. And this is an experiment. This is not an approved shot. Because if it were an approved shot, after a handful of these myocarditis signals, why don't we have comirnaty in the US? Because all that reporting would go into the federal agencies and they would have to pull it from the market. Why do we only still have the emergency authorized experimental products on the market? because they have liability protection. So they can harm the hearts of children, they can kill children with their, their spike protein, but they have no repercussion for it. So that's why we're not giving children an approved product, because it would be pulled off the market post-haste. So there is this new, uh, bi what they call bivalent vaccine, right? Which is supposed to, I, I actually don't know enough about it, um, but ostensibly it would be using this new Omic or newer Omicron spike, right, mm -hmm. in its development. Um, so, I, so that's the product you'd recommend? Not at all. <laughs> Definitely not, because it still has the Wuhan spike on it. Mm -hmm. And it, it's bivalent, bi meaning two. So it has the Wuhan spike and it has part of the Omicron spike on it by valent. So that Wuhan spike is still the clotting spike. So if you get that in your body and it starts replicating, all these mechanisms of harm, your body is still predisposed to do all those things. Now, Moderna has Wuhan and BA1. BA1 is extinct in humanity. So Moderna's product is moot, technically. It's all risk in terms of those harms we listed with no advantage for, um, it gives like a, a small window of protection supposedly, but in the first couple weeks after, you're actually more susceptible to any and all infection because it immune suppresses you and, and most companies haven't told the public that. Why did we see so much COVID after the first shots? Well, it's because people were immune suppressed. So this is gonna do the same thing again. Most people have had COVID variant one, variant two, earlier variants, and Omicron. Most people have a broad enough immunity. Unfortunately, every time you get a shot, you're putting blinders on the horse. Your immune system becomes more and more and more and more narrowed. This is called immune imprinting. And we keep presenting this spike, the old Wuhan spike and this new Omicron spike, 
Now the body isn't going to be able to recognize new variants. Now you're a sitting duck when a worse variant does come along. So that's immune imprinting. There's a lot of literature on that now showing that the more shots you get, the more narrowed your immune response is. And fascinatingly, even there's a paper that just came out last week showing that there's a similar protein um, in the flu shots that can actually make COVID worse and vice versa. If you got COVID and got the flu shot, it can make your reaction to that worse. It's, I, I want to say it's the H3N2 recombination. There's an overlap. So we're seeing immune imprinting from other viruses as well too. The more people get this shot, the worse they're doing. Now the same thing with Pfizer. Their bivalent is Wuhan sequence plus a, a portion of BA4 and BA5. And again, BA4 and BA5 are on the wane. We have a BA4.6 that's on the rise, and we have XBB or XPP, Gryphon. There's a bunch of other little variants that are starting to uptick. And now we have an expired product. The bivalent shots are now expired. They still have the Wuhan spike. They can still cause clotting. They can still cause myocarditis. They can still cause brain damage. They can still cause death. So I wouldn't recommend any shot to anyone at this point. We have early treatments that can save lives. But if we keep giving these shots, the work of Gert van den Bosch, who I admire very much, and I've sat down and chatted about these things at dinner with him several times, we will continue to select for worse variants if we continue pushing these dangerous spike protein shots into the human body. Without a doubt, we will have worse variants because we're doing the wrong thing to the human body. So let's talk about the clotting mm -hmm. very briefly. So we've, um, we've had some shocking um, reporting that we've done around some of these clots that were, you know, embalmers pulled and that, mm -hmm. that's originally, and of course, you know, you, you spoke to this a little bit earlier and you're describing this as, you know, white fibrous mm -hmm. clots. So you've actually seen these. I do, I have several of those from the embalmers and I have several from clinicians who pulled them from living patients. And they are white and fibrous. And we have lots of proteins constantly circulating in our blood. We have our antibodies, we have our complement system, we have our blood cells proper, et cetera. And these are induced into a clumping pattern by the spike protein. And so this is, this is what's concerning again with the shots. The S1 segment is known to be hyper uh, hypercoagulable in terms of causing proteins to clump even in the absence of platelets. Platelets are just the little patches, you know, when you scrape your knee and you're starting to ooze and the platelets just start stacking on top of each other with the fibrin and form a mesh. So you can take platelet pore plasma. Dr. Pretorius in South Africa has done most of the uh, cutting edge work on the clotting cascades with, with COVID and these amyloid-like clots. Um, and even in the absence of platelets, the proteins still clump and stick together. And they're unusual, they're firm, they are rubbery, they're long. I have some that are a couple of feet long in some of the samples. I've looked at them under the microscope and that, that spike protein is really what's inducing this clotting pathway. Now, your body needs oxygen, so you get one of these clots laying down somewhere in the body. Now, can it cause a heart attack? Sure. Can it cause a stroke? Sure. Can it cause infarction of the bowel. Absolutely, I've seen that in several cases. And, and this is what's very frustrating. Um, as I've heard so many case reports, patients going to the emergency room um, and the doctor ignoring their complaint, oh, it's all in your head. No, ask them when they got their most recent shot because these microclots can choke off oxygen to any organ. It's interesting, even, even a, a little aside, I'll have this in my talk tomorrow, we're seeing a lot more appendicitis after the shots. What we're seeing in um, a lot of these studies is inflammation around the appendix, and then on stains, we're seeing spike protein there too. So again, this spike goes everywhere. The lipid nanoparticle takes the gene everywhere and the spike goes everywhere. And then fingers clotting, you know, little clots, fingers and toes, people will choke off circulation to a digit and need an amputation, just all sorts of things. It's incredible. It is incredible. Why are we still doing this to humanity is, is my question. We know the pathways of harm and, and the naysayers, oh, the spike isn't a toxin. I'm like, hmm, the cells don't lie. And that's my defense. The cells don't lie. These people aren't looking at the cells under the microscope. They're not seeing the damage I am. Many of my colleagues are. The cells don't lie. Um, 
if it's inconvenient to what you want to tell yourself, that's fine, but the cells don't lie. The clots don't lie. The damaged organs don't lie. How is it possible that there's so few pathologists that are talking about this? Institutional fear. They, uh, uh, the majority of large pathology groups are, they're, they're talking about it privately, just not publicly. Um, pathologists tend not to be a very gregarious group of people. They tend to be more the, you know, what's the difference between an extroverted and, and an introverted pathologist? The extroverted one looks at your shoes when he's talking to you. So they, they tend to be a very quiet, reserved group. Um, very intelligent people, very well trained. But I think that the challenge is a lot of them in the university settings have large grants. They know if they speak out against the NIH's narrative, they won't get funding. I think some of the private groups fear for what I experienced, and that's cancellation by their medical community and their insurance companies if they speak out against the narrative. So I think fear. Um, it's not, I'm, I'm not the only one that knows these things I'm sharing with you. There are plenty that have uh, shared in private that they're seeing them. Um, but silence uh, is contagious, but so is courage. So I would encourage my colleagues to be courageous. Tell the truth. Say what you're seeing. See something, say something. So, you know, you told me something very encouraging when we were speaking earlier, um, and you were describing, you know, possible research that could be done to potentially reduce myocarditis. So I guess I wanted to talk to you about a little bit about, you know, the other side of what this conference is going to be about, which is, you know, how to, how to deal with some of these things. And you had this, you had this, you know, very interesting idea you wanted to throw. <laughs> yeah. And this, this is kind of a fun idea. It's out there. And that's what my brain does because I'm a synthesizer. I see all the depth of everything. And then I step back and I can identify all the trees. I'm the pathologist. Yeah, there's that strain. But look at the forest. Look at the pattern. So one of the patterns in myocarditis is upregulation of a, a certain receptor called toll-like receptor number four. And then that upregulation will induce certain inflammatory pathways to start causing inflammation of the heart. Well, we know in vitro, uh, we can downregulate that receptor with something as simple as near-infrared light. And near-infrared light can penetrate up to about four inches through skin, through bone, um, into the deep tissues of our body. Now, it helps regenerate mitochondria, but it also downregulates this receptor, which then hypothetically would downregulate uh, inflammation. So something as simple as taking X number of patients with myocarditis, taking a near-infrared light panel, putting it on the cardiac tissue, we know it works in vitro, completely, you know, very low risk intervention. You know, 16, 20 minute exposure per day, and then check the inflammatory markers. Um, do the follow-up scans, simple studies like this. These out-of-the-box ideas when we have the, the plausible mechanisms already proven, we have the pilot information available. These are the kind of studies where, you know, some of the traditional things, just the steroids and the colchicine and, and don't move your body for six months, sure. But what about finding better things constantly? And that's what medicine should be doing and science should be doing, is asking the question and, and evolving. And that's what I like about this conference is, again, I'm, I'm bringing the doom and gloom to begin with and then kicking it off to my, my colleagues and friends and saying, okay guys, what do we do to fix this? So there are things out there that we can try. And are we gonna do those on a, a university level? Hopefully some of my colleagues will wake up and, and do these grants, but otherwise, Look, the public sector, if we want good medicine, we're going to build parallel systems. That's going to happen. But we are going to need, you know, parallel philanthropists, too, to prove or disprove the scientific theories that, you know, we're looking into. And I think this has opened many of our minds into a broader view of health and wellness. And I'm grateful for, that's a silver lining in all this chaos, is health and wellness has become more important. And I think a lot more people are more health conscious and aware. And I always say, look, the best doctor in the room is here right now. And people are like, man, he's arrogant. I'm like, no, you. You're your own best doctor. Nobody knows your body better than you. And you get to choose what you do or don't put into it, what you do or don't do with it. And so this has, I think, opened up the eyes that, look, we really haven't been able to depend on our public health agencies around the world. They have agendas, and the one thing they really haven't focused on is health and wellness. So 
not everybody, but a, a good number of people, thankfully, have woken up to that fact, and they realize, okay, nobody's here to swoop in and rescue me, and we've seen enough of modern medicine, big systems treat people very poorly, and the systems act in a broken fashion. So this gives people the opportunity to take charge of their own physical health and wellness, but it also brings good people together to learn and teach each other and um, come up with new ideas and find people that will help us carry those out. Dr. Cole, uh, any final thoughts as we finish? The world is still a good place and there are still good people. <laughs> and in spite of all of this that so many of us have devoted our lives to this last you know, two and a half years, focus on each other, the divisions, let's come back together, let's be kind, let's listen again, let's not let politics mess up medicine, let's care about each other, and uh, we're both alive and awake today, and it's always a new day, and be grateful for it. Well, Dr. Ryan Cole, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining Dr. Ryan Cole and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Thank you.